Well, good morning. That's pitiful. Good morning. There you go. I'm Pastor Michael, and I'm glad that you are here this morning. Indeed, today we gather to celebrate our risen Savior and Lord, and I want you to know, indeed, how glad I am that you've chosen to be here instead of anywhere else this Sunday morning. It tells me that God, indeed, desires that you would experience Him in a fresh and a living and a powerful way this morning. Well, normally Easter messages are about Jesus' resurrection, and so we find those famous Easter passages at the end of each of the gospel accounts. Well, today we're going to stray away from that norm, if it's all right, and situate ourselves at the beginning of John's gospel, John 4 to be exact. Now, the reason I want to center our attention there is it's the first time in the gospels that we hear Jesus proclaim that he is the long-awaited Messiah. His proclamation reminds us of why He came, that is, God in flesh, living a sinless life, dying a sacrificial death and raising from the dead, all because He is the Savior of those who have or who will place their faith in Him and His finished work on the cross. So with that in mind, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4 this morning as well. The words will be on the screen behind me, or you can grab a a Bible from the pew there and turn to page 752, and you will find John chapter 4 this morning. Well, in this passage, we encounter Jesus in a way that really seems different for most of us who are used to reading through the Bible. We see him exhausted. We see him thirsty. He and his disciples have been traveling since daybreak, and it's now noon. He's likely hungry. The disciples have left him sitting on the edge of Jacob's well as they head to town to purchase food for lunch. Now what happens in their absence will teach us much. It will teach us much about who Jesus is, and it will teach us much about who we are. During that time, he has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. And that conversation is going to aid us in rethinking Easter, making certain that we understand it through the lens of eternal hope, loving sacrifice, and total forgiveness. What we're going to walk away with this morning, I hope, is confidence. Confidence that through the life and the death and the resurrection of God's Son, God indeed rescues us who believe from the mess. From the mess that we, every one of us, have made of our lives. It's my guess that we're going to see ourselves in the Samaritan woman. And we're likely going to resonate with her messiness. We will rejoice in how Jesus pursues her relentlessly with a message of eternal hope. And we are going to be glad that we are counted among the forgiven people. Well, as we begin this morning, let's pause and ask the Lord to give us guidance, to give us understanding, to peel back the facade that we most often wear to cover up the mess that we might just get honest with ourselves and with God about our sin. Let's pray together. Father, 
we pause as we come to the proclamation of your word. God, it's central to what we do in this place every time we gather each Sunday. But Father, this morning I ask very specifically, would your Holy Spirit take your word and apply to each of our hearts and minds in a way that only you have the power to do. Father, I don't know what all you want to accomplish in this room this morning over the next few minutes, but God, I pray you would do it. And Father, I pray that we would not deceive ourselves about the messiness of our lives, but that we, we would be honest and we would look toward you for rescue. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for loving us and giving us your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the sun is beating down. The water jar on her shoulder is heavy. Her eyes are watching the movement of every step of her sandal-clad feet. She's come to the well to draw water in the middle of the day in hopes of avoiding the normal barrage of harassing comments from the other ladies. For a few minutes, she wants to leave behind the embarrassment. She wants to leave behind the shame which has resulted from her relational choices in life. She finally looks up from the well-worn path as she arrives at the well, surprised by the presence of a Jewish man. She stares at him. He stares back at her. And the silence of her journey is broken by his words. Give me a drink. She's more than caught off guard in that moment. She is still trying to process, what, why, why is he here? Why has he spoken to me in public since we are opposite sex? Why? Why is a Jew engaging me, a Samaritan, seemingly disregarding all of the religious laws and the typical ethnic bias of the Jews? She objects. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? Jesus answered her, If you knew... If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She's confused. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Likely, church, it was more than a hundred feet Deep. Where do you get living water? Jesus clarifies, everyone who drinks of this water, he'll be thirsty again. But, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal Life. Well, as for our purposes this morning, this is the moment in which we enter into the conversation. So join Jesus 
and the Samaritan woman by the well. Listen to her response. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's thinking in the natural realm. You, you mean you have special water in the midst of this arid desert that will permanently satisfy my thirst? I want that water. That's the water I want. She's also thinking realistically. If, if you have such water, then I can avoid my midday heat-ridden journey to this well. Oh, she doesn't say all of that, but it's evident that that's what she's thinking. And, and we'll soon find out why she dreads coming to this place every day. Because Jesus does with her what He has likely done in your life and mine. He presses in. So as to get to the heart of the matter and to expose her thoughts. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. Certainly this seems off topic, doesn't it? We were talking about lifelong satisfying water that is much more convenient than what I'm getting today. And now you're talking about my marriage? But she instantly, she instantly feels the weight of his words. Her relationship to men is the very reason she avoids coming early in the cool mornings with the other women to draw water. She, she used to do that. But the ridicule, it became too much for her. In this very place, right here, she heard comment after comment such that she became convinced that they were right. She is worthless. Her life, a total mess. She became defined by her seeming need to have a man in her life. And that's why she wanted living water that Jesus spoke of. To avoid the realities of her life's choices. I think we should note that in verses 15 and 16, this is the only time in all of the Gospel of John that he uses this word for here. You remember those in verse 15 and 16? That tells us that these two topics, the living water and her relationship with men, they are indeed connected. Jesus here is pressing into the depth of her heart so as to reveal her greatest need. Forgiveness. Forgiveness from her Creator. Oh, but we get ahead of ourselves. The Samaritan woman responds what I would call artfully. (laughs) You might say deceptively. Listen to verse 17, a part of it anyway. She says, I I have no 
husband. I, I would love to know what Jesus' face looked like in that moment. I, I'd love to know how perhaps he tilted his head in a particular direction, maybe leaned toward her in conversation. Jesus is not about to allow that tactic to work. You know the one. I'll be just honest enough about my life that I can keep people at a distance. They will never know the real me. The one that's marred. The one that's marked by my past or my current sins and my struggles. Jesus goes on in verse 17. You are right in saying you have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. I want to pause right there in the storyline. I want to ask you, I've invited you to come to the well with Jesus and the Samaritan woman this morning. I want you to think about where... Ask yourself, where do I fit into this story? Where do I likely fit in? True enough, most folks have not had five failed marriages and living with a sixth partner. But many have a messy past. And even a present reality of sin that we do not want to expose. We think like the Samaritan woman, if I can avoid coming to that place that so regularly reminds me of my sin, it, it will be better. If I can just get away from what has now defined who I am, it will be better. Every one of us has a here in our lives. Maybe it's this building. This thing we call the church. We know the church is people, redeemed people. But this building, this here, reminds us of our sin. And so we avoid it. Oh, we step in occasionally. But it's always with trepidation. Will I be found out? Will, will the person I'm sitting next to or behind or in front of, do they know that about me? Maybe it's your parents' table, even as an adult. Oh, they parents know most about us, a lot about us anyway. Maybe that's the here that we avoid. Maybe, maybe here is a place where we regularly have committed a particular sin. And we just think, man, I, I just don't want to go there. Because when I go there, it's my here. And when I arrive at my here, I'm confronted with the choices I've made in my life. I'm confronted with the choices I'm currently making in my life that's wrecking me, that's making a mess of my life, and that is likely hurting someone else that I care about. Oh, we feel overwhelmed by our sin. 
We feel overwhelmed by its effects in our lives. We begin to believe the lies of the evil one. Satan, the devil. I think best named the accuser. That's who he is. He accuses the children of God. He points fingers at us and says, Do you really think that you are worthy to be used by God in the slightest amount? Look at the sin that has piled up in your life. Look at the sin from your, from your uh, adolescence, from your college years, from your young adult life. Look at all of that sin. Do you really think you're worthwhile? Do you really think you got it together? That's what Satan does. That's what the accuser does. He accuses the children of God. Why? Oh, he's lost us, right? We're redeemed. We're on our way to heaven. But if he can cause us to be convinced that the sin in our life makes, renders us useless and worthless, he'll sideline us and marginalize us in the kingdom of God. So the accuser accuses. But there is a reality that even if we are redeemed in Christ, there are times when we're in the midst of a battle of a sin that we thought we had put to death and it seems to rise again. Every time I think of that, I think of our oldest daughter, Daly. She was about three and a half, four years old at the time. We were doing our normal evening routines, putting to bed, tucking in nicely around the covers tight. You always tuck the covers tight enough around them, like around their shoulders and under their arms. You know why, right? Because they can't do anything at that moment. They're cocooned, and then you can tickle the daylights out of them, right? It's a sneaky trick. Let me tuck you in. That night, we had tucked her in, done the tickle ceremony. And then began to have our devotional time. And we were reading from the Psalms. And it spoke of the fact that God's love is so great. His love for us is as high as the heavens are above the earth. That He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And that He has buried our sin in the depths of the sea to remember it. No more. What a beautiful word, right? It's a hopeful word for us. And I was trying to explain that and unpack it in a way she would understand. Oh, she got it. She looked at me. She said, Daddy. She said, it's kind of weird, though. She says, I know that Jesus buries our sin in the depths of the sea, but it sure seems like it often crawls back out onto the beach. I never know how transparent to be in this place. So if you're a guest, just know that I tend to err on transparency side. Because I want you to know that I'm a brother amongst brothers and sisters. I want you to know that I'm a Christian walking toward eternity. I'm on an earthly sojourn, and I don't have it all together. It's not all right. I promise that. I'm trying. In the power of God, I hope it gets better tomorrow than it is today. But Friday afternoon, we're trying to get loaded up in our house, to all ride in one vehicle, an amazing feat now with five cars. I have a used car parking lot in my, right outside my door. 
We're trying to come as a family to good, good Friday service. I have a set time. We need to leave. I'll throw no one under the bus, but we didn't make it out of the door on time. I found myself, I'd like to tell you I found myself frustrated. That sounds nice, right? Frustrated. Anybody ever get frustrated? That's a cleaned up church word, isn't it? That's a gloss. There are times I get frustrated, but I got angry. It was momentary. It came. It overwhelmed. It went. I repented. I asked forgiveness. And in those moments, nanoseconds, I've read so much on anger and other types of sin, it it all flows through my mind. So why are you angry, Michael? What is it that you're not getting that you want? What is it that you think is right that's not happening in this place? How is it that someone needs to modify and change? What idol is it that you're holding up? Idol of respect, idol of obedience, idol... what What is it? Oh, all of that is processing in my mind in nanoseconds. But there's no justification. None. And we go to a service that we spend 45 minutes talking about sin and the heaviness of sin and the messiness that nailed Christ to the cross. I've been in a funk. Is that a word I can say in church? I've been messed up since that this weekend. I don't know why. I know that the Scripture teaches, just as we've sung this morning, Christ has bore my sin and He has taken it away. He has justified me freely forever. There's there for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have to preach that gospel in the midst of the messiness of my sin. That's what the accuser does. He says you're not worth anything. You've had five failed marriages, and the person you're now living with is not your spouse. Praise be to the Lord. That's not what Jesus did in that moment at the edge of the well. Oh, Paul is right. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all have messy lives, just like the Samaritan woman had a very messy, sin-filled life. So the question is not, is my life messy with sin? The questions are, am I redeemed from the darkness of that sin? Have I been freed and justified, declared not guilty in God's holy courtroom by the shed blood of Christ on the cross? Has my identity been transformed from an enemy of God to a child of God? What this morning is the truest thing about you? If you are redeemed... If you are redeemed through Christ's shed blood on the cross and by the power of His resurrection from the dead in which He has shown the defeat of sin, Satan, and death, then the truest thing about you is that you are forgiven. Amen? Praise be to the Lord. You can shout right there. That's who we are. That's our truest identity. 
We are redeemed child, forgiven child of God. Back to our text. The balance of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman shows us, I love this part, his relentless pursuit of those who have yet received forgiveness. That's what Jesus does. He relentlessly pursues us. In verse 19, the Samaritan woman's response to Jesus' knowledge of both her public and private sin is this. Sir, (laughs) I perceive you are a prophet. It's interesting as you flow through the conversation, this now prompts her to ask a religious question about the right place to worship as Samaritans and the Jews differed in their understanding. Verse 20. And then in verse 22, Jesus tells her that salvation is from the Jews. In verse 23, that the Father... I love this. The Father is seeking, relentlessly pursuing those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 26, He reveals to her that He is the Messiah. She says, listen, you know when the Messiah comes, He'll settle all of this. He'll make plain what is behind this conversation we're having. He'll he'll clear up the muddiness of the theological waters. I love verse 26. I who speak to you am He. I'm the Messiah that you and your people have been waiting for. This passage is saturated with the evidence that Jesus is relentlessly pursuing not only this woman, but through her, all of those who lived in that Samaritan city called Sychar. Earlier in the passage, John notes that Jesus was departing for Galilee, leaving Judea, and that he had to pass through Samaria. Certainly the most expedient pathway from Judea to Galilee was through Samaria, but John, I think, intends more than a travel log. There there is a sense in verse 4 of divine providence. Pastor Scott mentioned that earlier this morning. There is sovereignty at play here. He had to pass through Samaria. There seems to have been an imperative upon his spirit to go that direction. He had to be at Jacob's well at noon. He had to break all the normal social conventions and speak to a woman. He had to press in on her sin to show her that she too could receive forgiveness and find true identity in her Creator. He had to reveal herself, himself to her as living water. He had to reveal himself to her as prophet as Savior, and ultimately, as Messiah. All in relentless pursuit that she would receive forgiveness. Now the text doesn't tell us, doesn't fully tell us that she trusted Jesus as Savior in Christ. But she does go back to the town and she tells others that she may have encountered the Messiah. 
Oh, they follow and many believe. No longer, the text says, because of her testimony only, but because of Jesus' teaching. They beg him, they say, will you stay with us? And he stays for two days and he teaches them. What we learn of Jesus in this passage is that he was sent by the Father to accomplish the work of salvation through his death and resurrection in the lives of all who would believe. What we learn of the Samaritan woman and those who lived in the village is that the only true hope of redemption from the messiness of our sins is Jesus Christ. What we learn of our community is that there are others who have allowed their sin, the messiness of their lives, to shape their view of themselves. They feel like they are in bondage without hope. Whatever their sin is, sexual immorality, materialism, addiction, pride, anger, jealousy, they're captives, church. They are captives without hope for redemption. But like those in Sychar who heard the Samaritan woman's testimony and who were intrigued and who then heard Jesus' words and believed, there is hope for redemption and there is certainty of forgiveness for all who trust Christ. The story of the Samaritan woman helps us to rethink Easter. It helps us to realize that Jesus took the messiness of our lives and redeemed us and gave us hope, eternal hope. So, this Easter morning, what are we going to do with the message of who Jesus Christ is? The message that he's the long-awaited Messiah who has the power to redeem the messiness of our lives, who uses that power to relentlessly pursue us that we might experience forgiveness. What are we going to do with that message? Well, it's my hope this morning that if you have never believed on Christ, that you would believe today. It's that simple. God so loved the world, John writes, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. That's the gospel wrapped up right there. So receive it. Believe this morning. Don't let another Easter go by, my friends. I'm begging you this morning. Trust Christ. So, Michael, I've got to clean it up. I've got to fix my mess, and then I'll come back to Jesus. Yeah, failed theory. Won't work. You don't have the strength, nor do I, to clean ourselves up and be righteous before a holy God. Only God can make us righteous. And it's through the death of His Son. Trust it. And if you have expressed faith in the past, my hope is you'll rehearse your faith every day. When the accuser comes at you, and starts dragging up that stuff that Jesus buried in the depths of the sin, depths of the sea. When he starts dragging it back up, point him. Point him toward the gospel. Say, God loved me enough to send his only son. I believed and I'm saved. Get behind me. I have no dealings with you. I am a true child of God. Forgiven. Messy? Yes. Forgiven? Yes. 
I also ask you this morning, if you know Christ, who will you invite to hear the claims of his teaching? The Samaritan woman responds. She leaves her water jar and she runs back to town. And she starts telling everyone, even those, think about this, even those perhaps who had derided her in the past. She goes to them. Because there's something about this man. Maybe he's the the Christ. This is really not all that surprising that she goes back and does this. Because the gospel truth has a way of bringing peace, certainly with God, but also with others. Suddenly, these sandal-clad, dusty, dirty feet that she had observed every step that she had taken to get to that old well were now sandal-clad feet carrying a message of peace. Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who are shotted with, who carry the gospel forward. Paul would say, this woman came beautifully back to town. Listen to me, my friends. God relentlessly pursues us even though we've made a mess of our lives. Maybe today, perhaps here is where you'll find living water. That as Jesus says, it will become a wellspring of eternal life in you. Believer, believe the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself and others. Unbeliever, quit trying to clean up your mess. It's hopeless in your own power. Come to Christ and let Him wash you with living water. Let Him justify you. Let Him make you clean, white as snow. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the privilege that we've had to gather this morning to sing, to celebrate, to recite Scripture, to ponder our own sinfulness and to confess it before you. God, I pray for men and women, boys and girls in this room this morning who do not know Christ. I pray as Paul did, would you enlighten them, would you grant them faith this morning? Might they believe and be saved? Lord, would you do that in their hearts and minds this morning? And for true children of God in this room this morning who just feel like their life is a mess and that they are useless, would you refresh them in the truth of the gospel? Would you cause them to remember their true identity is a child of God, forgiven by the grace of God? Do your work, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.